Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 458, recorded on Sunday, February 5th, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Our recent three-part series on the Boston Associates discussed their systematic and well-financed importation of first industrial revolution capitalism to Massachusetts, beginning in the town of Waltham, where they established their first power loom mills and machine production companies. While they eventually outgrew Waltham and moved on to establish new towns like Lowell and Lawrence, Waltham's role in the Industrial Revolution was far from over. As the First Industrial Revolution was about to turn into the Second Industrial Revolution with the arrival of the American Civil War, a new company established itself in Waltham based off the core tenets of Massachusetts industrial processes, and that arrival would completely reshape Waltham in the rest of the 19th century. Pocket watches were a luxury item for several centuries until 1857, when the American Watch Company of Waltham, Massachusetts, later nicknamed Watch City, developed a mass production watch with interchangeable parts for cheap and quick repair, called the Waltham Model 57. This had been, after a couple decades of effort in the region, directly adapted from the armory system of mass-produced interchangeable parts for gun manufacturing in the United States, and especially in Massachusetts, which we covered in our episode about that, number 380 from June 2021. In both cases, the piecework cottage industry systems were replaced with factory production lines. As with the weapons production, the watch company had to develop its own machine tools to make and maintain the specialized machines for this watch component production and assembly, and this further contributed to the growth of the emerging and leading American machine tools sector so that other industries could follow suit with mass production of their own things, besides guns and watches. The factory, which produced watches from 1857 to 1950, still exists today as housing. Part of Newton, my city, was offloaded to Waltham because so many factory workers lived in one particular border neighborhood. The area, including the factory, is now a National Historic District. By 1865, the company was producing 60,000 watches per year, destroying the traditional Swiss watch industry's global market edge and forcing them to pivot to specializing in ultra-high-end luxury production, presumably with matching marketing efforts. Ironically, the Waltham Watch Company ended up opening a factory in Switzerland in the 1950s before actually being bought out in 1968 by a Swiss company. But, sticking with our 19th century processes, two huge mid-19th century forces provided a massive demand for mass-produced affordable pocket watches in the United States, and you can stop me if you've heard this one before, but it's going to be familiar to a lot of our other episodes. First, 
the formation of a massive Union army to wage the Civil War, whose hundreds of thousands of soldiers were eager to own watches and finally made the wages to be able to, and the explosive growth of the cross-country railroad industry in the 1850s, 1860s, and beyond, which required and popularized precise, reliable, and consistent timekeeping technology across vast distances for the first time. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit more about railroads and their role in the watch industry? Yeah. So railroad chronometers, or railroad uh, standard watches, were timepieces that were kept and maintained by critical railroad personnel, for example, engineers, conductors, switchyard controllers, etc., to ensure that two trains weren't on the same stretch of track at the same time. Um, you had to maintain these uh, times, uh, synchronize them across long distances, and make sure everybody was on the same time. Um, so standards were established from the initial long-distance railroad boom of the 1850s and 60s, but differed from company to company. Each company would hire a quote-unquote time inspector who decided which watches were suitable for use as chronometers. And as watchmaking technology improved, standards also improved, with older timepieces rendered obsolete. And in 1887, the American Railroad Association met and established a fairly standardized set of requirements, but not all companies adopted them. Uh, the Waltham Watch Company was used for railroad chronometers as early as the 1860s. So uh, I'm going to list off a couple, uh, a few of the typical standards of the early 1900s, um, the standards, the features that these watches had to have to be considered appropriate for chronometers. Um, so first, only American-made watches could be used. Um, this was dependent on the availability of spare parts. Um, only open-face dials with the stem of the watch at 12 o'clock, a uh, minimum of 17 functional jewels in the movement. Uh, they were allowed to have a maximum variation of 30 seconds um, which per weekly check, which approximates to about four seconds daily in variance. Um, the watch had to uh, be accurate at, in at least five positions. So when the watch was face up and face down, which are the positions a watch might commonly take when laid on a flat surface, and then crown up, crown pointing left, and crown pointing right, which are the positions a watch might commonly take in a pocket. Occasionally, a sixth position with the crown pointing down would be included. Um, the watches had to uh, work under severe temperature variance and isochronism, which is variance in spring tension. Um, the time had to be indicated with bold, legible Arabic numerals, not Roman numerals. Um, there had to be an outer minute division, a second dial, and heavy hands. Um, a lever had to be used to set the time, so there was no risk of inadvertently setting the watch to an erroneous time when winding the watch with the stem. And as uh, diesel electric locomotives uh, came on the scene, which we've talked about in previous episodes about railroad technology, um, the watches also had to have anti-magnetic protection or else the magnetism could uh, affect how the timekeeping occurred. Um, and also, uh, interestingly enough, starting with Webb C. Ball of the Ball Watch Company in 1883, the time signal service from the United States Naval Observatory was used to maintain accuracy of railroad wa standard watches. So everybody was on the same standard, no matter where in the country you were, um, what type of watch you used, you could use that time signal service from the U.S. Naval Observatory to synchronize your watches and make sure they were 
very accurate at all times. So as we've said, the Waltham Watch Company or the American Watch Company of Waltham uh, originally uh, established in uh, 1857 and rolls out this Waltham Model 57 just in time for taking advantage of both the growing railroad industry and the American Civil War. Uh, and that's a familiar story that we've heard. For example, our episode about canned foods. Uh, the canned food industry takes off because of production for the American Civil War. However, this was not the end of the role of the defense sector and government spending on uh, defense expenditures in growing this this company. Uh, and that is similar as well to carrier air conditioning, which had to produce uh, for World War I uh, air conditioning standards in munitions factories that could ensure that the powder was kept uh, dry as it was being assembled and so forth. Um, so similarly, European armies during World War I contracted uh, for Waltham to make them the mechanized time fuses to control the burst of artillery shells. Uh, when the U.S. entered the war, the U.S. War Department ordered them as well. There was little competition interested in getting these contracts, and eventually Waltham actually ran out of capacity. And by the end of the war, the mismanaged company was a, in a huge mess and was actually forced into restructuring by creditors once the flow of defense spending ended suddenly. Another irony for the company is that the First World War led directly to the collapse in popularity of the pocket watch in favor of the wristwatch, which was better for trench warfare. And then, uh, also with the decline in uh, vests in men's fashions, they weren't likely to make much of a comeback after the war uh, was fully in the rearview mirror. So they enter the 1920s in a, a pretty bad state, uh, certainly by the mid-1920s. They really need to shake things up uh, because uh, although there's still a big uh, demand for wristwatches, uh, pocket watches are out, the company's not been well run, their facilities are not in great shape. Uh, and this brings us, Rachel, to the watchmaker's strike of 1924. So after the First World War uh, boom, they really entered a, a huge sluggish period in the early 1920s. Um, like Bill said, uh, Waltham was slow to modernize and they continued to produce high grade pocket watches, um, lacking the machinery to produce wristwatch parts. So they were trying to, uh, supply a market that just had no demand. Um, so in 1923, uh, on the brink of disaster, Waltham underwent a massive restructuring and they brought in a new chief executive, FC Dumain. Uh, Dumain integrated departments, uh, Prior to this point, there were discrete departments that kind of worked in their own workshops. Um, so they need to be integrated to be more efficient. And they also focused on modernizing their product. So this included manufacturing small new wristwatches at a smaller price point um, to to meet the demand for the this new demand for cheap, easy to buy um, wristwatches, easy to wear wristwatches at a low price point which was a, a 180 from their high-end pocket watch manufacturing. Um, in addition, uh, Dumain cut executive pay and eliminated private secretaries, creating a secretarial pool instead. Um, so at that time, factory wages weren't cut, and Waltham slowly paid down their debts and kind of crawled out of the hole that they had dug for themselves. However, in order to further increase profitability, a general worker pay cut of 10 to 40% was proposed in 1924. Um, Obviously, that was very unpopular, and workers from the finishing department first put down their tools and walked off the job on August 11, 1924, in the wake of an announced 10% cut. 
Uh, the next day, 200 workers from the finishing and setting up departments stayed home. And within three days, the entire Waltham site was involved in a company-wide work stoppage, the first in the company's history. Um, during the strike, small-scale department-level worker organization was abandoned, and a new company-wide organization called the Watchmakers Protective Association was formed. Now, plant superintendent, i.e. Boucher, refused to recognize the organized workers, and he demanded to meet only with individual workers to discuss wages. He didn't want to meet with groups of workers that were organized in any way. Um, he also declared that all striking workers were terminated and that they would have to reapply for their jobs to come back to work. And by day three, 2,000 out of a total 2,900 workers had walked off the job and took to the streets to speak out against the pay cut, marching through Waltham to a rally held at a city park. Um, the only department still working at that time was the machine department, whose employees were part of a separate AFL-affiliated union, and they were just waiting for permission from their national organization to join in on the strike. By the second week of the strike, packing clerks and stenographers had joined in sympathy strikes, which effectively stopped all operations at the Waltham plant. Um, as August ended, the stalemate showed so no signs of stopping, and workers who had the means to move started traveling to Elgin, Illinois, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania to work for Waltham's main primary competitors. Um, the next month in September, the workers proposed a pay cut for men making more than $40 a week and women making more than $20 a week, which would spare the lowest paid workers. Um, the company was expected to accept the offer, and a celebration was even held on Saturday, September 27th. However, the company refused the proposal, and the celebration turned into a riot that raged until early Sunday morning and saw a mob storming the company's gates. As the strike stretched into October, the Massachusetts State Board of Conciliation made a proposal for a 5% wage cut as justified for all workers earning more than $18 a week. Neither side liked this proposal, with the company still preferring their blanket 10% cut across the board, and the strikers held a meeting where they outright rejected the board's proposal. Uh, while the strike lasted through January 1925, the company was able to maintain operations through the use of strike breakers, primarily new hires. An agreement was made on January 6, 1925 to end the strike. As part of the agreement, the company remained an open shop, but they did recognize the Watchmakers Protective Association. And that comes from the Monthly Labor Review, um, Volume 20, uh, Number 2, from February 1925. Um, that is just that just is an article listing labor strikes and labor strike results. So they listed this strike as one of the major strikes that happened in 1924. So the company, uh, when World War II rolled around, once again resumed artillery fuse production, those timed fuses. Great business for them. Should have been boom times. Uh, once again, followed by bankruptcy, I guess maybe unsurprisingly at this point. Um, but, you know, again, this, this boom-bust cycle, if you can't pivot out of the defense uh, dependency, then you have trouble. Yeah, it, that seems to be a common refrain. They get these really great rises in demand during war times, and then they don't know how to handle the bust after the post-war era. Um, I did want to mention um, the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors, or the NAWCC, has a lot of photos on their website of Waltham watches. 
Um, so they had a seminar in 2002 titled Boston Cradle of Industrial Watchmaking. And a lot of photos of Waltham watches were exhibited during the seminar. And they're actually archived um, on archive.org. And uh, I also found a link to a, a personal blog of a watch enthusiast. And he actually wrote a monograph about Waltham Watch Company uh, through their their bust uh, through their boom times of of the 1850s through to the 1920s. So uh, I I I really enjoyed uh, doing the research on this because watch enthusiasts are so passionate about their their subject of interest, um, and um, there was a lot of lively discussion about watches, which you might not expect, but um, I, watches seem to bring out a lot of of passion in people. All right. Well, another interesting first industrial revolution topic from right here in Massachusetts and uh, next door in Waltham. Uh, that's our episode on Watch City. We've got more great episodes coming up. Uh, so we hope you'll uh, continue to stick with us. And if you want, throw us some support on the Patreon. Uh, Rachel, thanks for being on this week to talk about Watch City Waltham. Glad to be back. <laughs>